Hello, folks. Welcome to the 35th episode of Myth, the first and last word, a bi-weekly program examining the myths of our world. I'm Echo Kane, an artist, musician, storyteller, ecologist, and educator interested in the socio-cultural historical interactions found within spirituality, myth, and religion. Twice a week, we attempt to better make sense of our rapidly changing and confusing modern world with the help of both ancient and contemporaneous myths from a wide variety of cultures. Today, we'll be looking at a myth from Hawaii entitled Maui Trap's Son. So, join me today on a journey into the past and the present, a voyage of the soul to understand itself, where we find both the first written word and the mystery of the last word entwined through time. Welcome to the world of myth. today comes from a wide variety of different uh, seafaring peoples of Oceania in the Pacific Ocean. This culture hero, Maui, who plays a pivotal role in the story, he's the protagonist, is especially important to Polynesians in general, including the Maori people of New Zealand and Hawaiians. Maui is associated with a number of great feats that stabilized the human world, stealing fire and giving it to the people, what's known as fire theft, slowing the sun, which is detailed in this story, and even the creation of Hawaii itself. Today, he is popularly known due to the Disney film Moana, in which Dwayne The Rock Johnson voices the trickster hero. This visual reimagining of Maui incorporates various descriptions from across the many cultures that told stories concerning him. Like many modern understandings of myths, the character and his importance and his signifiers are placed above a specific tie to one culture or a specific story. Instead, Maui is more used as a unifying concept uh, for the many different cultures that worshipped him instead of all the different diverse incarnations that he has had. This same process can be seen in our seemingly eternal reinterpretations of Greek mythology into modern day settings that became quite popular in the late 90s and early 2000s, but has honestly been popular since uh, the beginnings of modern English at the very least. These reinterpretations often retain only the most basic information concerning the character while seeding all specific cultural meanings. Ultimately, this story is clearly ancient, passed orally for generations upon generations across an incredibly vast expanse of ocean. I couldn't find a specific date for the recording of this myth, but it was likely written down when Europeans made extended contact with Hawaiians. I would guess that most myths were recorded post-1820, as this is when King Liho Liho allowed Protestant missionaries to enter Hawaii, causing an influx of interest in Hawaii in general and settlers uh, from mostly America settling there. 
I would go into the history of Hawaii, but I already have in the fourth episode of this podcast entitled Pele and Poliahu. To give you a very quick summary, essentially humans appear on Hawaii in approximately 700 CE and build up a civilization there over time, mostly based on taking food from not only agriculture, but also fishing and some domestication of uh, wildlife as well. There's also a lot of conflict, especially around 1600 CE, but throughout this time, there were a number of different shifts in power that just haven't been recorded in history because uh, they come to us through references upon references, stories that were told orally for generations about the history of Hawaii because there was not written language there until Europeans came in 1700 CE and slowly made their presence known, um, which was resisted quite heavily by native Hawaiians until 1820 when King Liho Liho gives up and just says, come on in. Uh, it's kind of unclear why he does this. It might have been a response to, I believe his father's or grandfather's uh, kingship, King Kamehameha, who was staunchly against any European settlers or missionaries coming to Hawaii. From there on, Hawaii is slowly colonized by America, eventually more being more directly colonized in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And from there, you know the rest of the story. Uh, it becomes a U.S. state eventually, and uh, currently there's a lot of rampant poverty on Hawaii because, and especially among Native Hawaiians, because the American settlers gained a lot of land because of uh, treaties they, they wrote with the Hawaiians. And Americans control almost all of the land on Hawaii at this point uh, because some of it is federally owned, some of it is owned, most of it is owned privately, and there's only a small amount that is considered public land, of course, and then essentially none, from my understanding, that is actually controlled by Native Hawaiians alone. Uh, they probably own private property, but once again, it is in that system of American capitalism, which makes it quite different than uh, how Hawaiians dealt with property beforehand. If you are more interested in Hawaiian history, do go back and check out the fourth episode, Pele and Poliahu, because I go into much greater detail in that episode. Let's tell this myth. Maui Traps Sun on the Wailuku River, not far from Rainbow Falls, lived the half-god, Maui. His mother, the goddess Hina, lived behind the falls in the Cave of Mists. In those times, the days were short, but Maui found a way to lengthen them. Maui was a young man of strength and courage. He had a magic club, a magic spear, and a magic canoe paddle, all given to him by his grandmother. In addition to these, he had special powers because he was the son of a goddess. 
He was very fond of his mother, Hina, and visited her nearly every day. For his stepfather, Aikanaka, the wanderer, was often away from home. The goddess Hina was known throughout the islands for her beauty and for the fine bark cloth she made. From the time Sun came through the eastern gate until he went through the western gate, Hina worked at her tapa. She gathered the bark herself from mulberry trees. She brought sea water in which to soak it. She pounded the wet bark on her tapa log. One time, when Maui was watching her, he said, You spend all your days making tapa. Hina laid aside her wooden beater, smiling in a sad way. For those who make tapa, the day is never long enough. This piece is ready to dry, but already sun turns toward the west. My tapa will still be damp when evening star hangs in the sky. This is sun's fault. He travels too swiftly. I shall find him and tell him so. Oh, Maui, sun is a god. We are gods too, Maui said but small ones, with small power. And you are but a half-god, his mother reminded him. Sun has great powers. No one has ever gone close to him and lived. Then I shall be the first, Maui boasted. I shall catch Sun and make him promise to go more slowly. Hina warned. Take your magic club and paddle. You will surely need all the power you have. First, Maui made snares. He gathered coconut fiber and twisted eight strong cords. At the end of each, he tied a noose. Then, as evening star appeared in the sky, he coiled his snares in his canoe, laid his magic club beside them, and picked up his magic paddle. One stroke carried him down the river, a second stroke to the island where Sun made his home in the crater of a dead volcano. Maui left his canoe, took his eight snares and his magic club, and started up to House of Sun. Swiftly he climbed the grassy slope. Slowly he climbed the steep side of the volcano. At the top, in the crater, Sun lay fast asleep under a blanket of clouds. Silently, Maui laid his snares. Then he hid behind a lava rock and slept through the night. Before daybreak, Maui woke. Clouds were just beginning to roll out of the crater. Soon over its rim came sun's longest leg, his first glittering ray of sunrise. Down the slope it came, and into the center of Maui's snare it stepped. Maui drew the cord tight and fastened it to the rock. What is this? roared Sun. You are my prisoner, said Maui. Let me go at once, Sun commanded. I have a long journey to make. You will journey nowhere until you promise to travel more slowly, said Maui. I go swiftly so my night's rest will be longer. Why should I promise such a thing? Sun demanded. Maui picked up his magic club before he answered. Because my mother Hina needs more time to dry her tapas. Tapas? Ah, I have no time for such things. 
Maui said no more. He swung his magic club against Sun's longest leg, breaking off a piece. Sun screamed in anger and pain. He scrambled to get three more legs over the rim of the crater, but Maui had laid his snares wisely, and each leg was caught fast. Sun thrashed about, blowing his fiery breath. Maui backed off and tied the three cords fast. Four more legs crawled over the crater's rim, and all these four legs were caught. Now Sun was frightened. The more he struggled, the tighter the nooses became. One leg was broken, and seven more were tied fast. He began to bluster. You dare not kill me! Without my light, plants and trees would die. Without plants, your people would die. Maui looked up from the cord he was tying. Son, let us bargain. Promise to travel more slowly for part of the time, and I shall let you go. I, I promise, said Sun crossly. With his magic club, Maui broke the cords. Sun hurried off across the sky, and Maui paddled back with the good news for Hina. After that, for part of each year, Sun traveled at his usual speed. Days were short, and darkness came early. But the rest of the year, Sun traveled much more slowly. Then the days were long and filled with sunshine, and Hina was able to dry her tapas. Sun kept his promise. If there were times when he wanted to hurry, his broken ray reminded him of the strength and courage of the young half-god, Maui. And that is how we have seasons, I guess. <laughs> Once again, a myth that is very etiological, very interested in explaining how natural phenomena work in the world. In this case, we are talking about the length of days, how long it takes for the sun to cross from horizon point to horizon point. It's quite interesting as well, this description of the sun as having a broken leg. Now, I have an astigmatism in both eyes, so when my eyes glance across the sun, never look at the sun directly, of course, but when they glance by it or I catch it in the periphery of my vision, it always feels as though there are jagged pieces to it, so I feel very connected to this uh, imagery of the sun having a broken leg. Nonetheless, I think most people probably view the sun uh, just as many points, perhaps with a smaller one or a few smaller ones and uh, very long ones, so maybe those smaller ones are the uh, broken legs. Now, I think we also need to make sense of the positionality of women in this story. It's important to note that Hina is clearly only interested in the production of textiles in this story. She uses her tapa log to beat bark into textiles, into cloth, which is pretty cool, honestly. I didn't even know you could, you could really do that with bark, but I guess it makes sense because there's a lot of fiber in there. Uh, if you beat it enough, it probably becomes much softer. But take note here that this was probably a traditional role for women in Hawaiian society. A lot of times, especially origin myths like this and etiological myths, will position certain characters as an example for what is right to do for that role in society. 
Sometimes that's an occupational role like a merchant or a court justice. Other times it's the role of gender in this case, where we have a woman expected to make clothing, textiles. And that is directly related, of course, to patriarchal systems and how we make sense of gender roles in our lives today. We still make these stories all the time. Most stories are interested in saying something about gender if they talk about humans at all, which it's always frustrating to me when I hear people talk about gender in this way of like, oh, that's just how it is normally, because truly gender is always something to be talked about in these stories uh, and in our analysis about them, because if we ignore it, then we are refusing an not only an entire topic, but a way of making sense of the world. Because this myth is also saying something about men as well, that men are supposed to go out and help women, right? And that's sort of a good thing. I think it's a slightly more positive form of masculinity than you might see in some other cultures, because at least it is not directly men strong. It is more interested in men as protectors and men as people who are willing to better the world, ultimately. This helps everyone. It doesn't just help Hina, because now everybody can dry their bark. Maui, of course, is a character who is half-god, and so these demigods are very important for our connection with these stories. In Greek mythology, there's a ton of demigods. I think that was to make people feel closer to the deities that are being talked about in these stories. And I think this works the exact same way with Maui. We feel more connected to Maui knowing that he is not a strong god. And so him taking on sun makes it all the more important and it makes his trickery make sense that he would make use of that instead of just grappling with sun. I can imagine this being written by uh, like Nordic peoples who you know wrote Beowulf and Beowulf is all about grappling uh, scary monsters. And I can just imagine that they would have had some sort of you know grappling fest instead of this much more interesting instance of Maui using these snares which, by the way, is the same use of bark and fiber that his mother is doing. So there's a connection there as well between his mother and him. That bark, that fiber, if, as I am suggesting, it is connected to the feminine gender role within the society of Hawaii at the time of this recording, then the use of this uh, material by Maui suggests a non-dual relationship with gender. That gender was not just a dichotomy, but a thing that was understood as being fluid. That textile work was not just for women, although they might have done a lot of it. Remember that the goddess is a representation used to show women what they should do in society, just as a god can be the same thing for men, although it often isn't in monotheistic religions today because God has slowly come to mean literally everything. So 
there is not this direct relationship with gender roles in the patriarchal god of uh, Judaism, for instance. The description of Maui's magical items is also important because they are, at least from my understanding, directly related to masculinity in this culture. A club, a spear, and a canoe paddle. Now, from my understanding, and I do have a limited understanding of Hawaiian culture, men probably were the ones going out fishing regularly and would have needed spear for fishing and canoe paddle to get out into the waters, as well as a club for conflict. There was a lot of conflict going on internally within Hawaii before there was any sort of interference by uh, European colonizers. So we can see that this dichotomy is still present. I, I think that the reality is, with a lot of myths, and this was present in our, in our last episode as well, that gender is non-dual, but in a subliminal way, where you have to read into the myth a little bit to make sense of it like that. Textiles, not just the production of textiles, but the use of textiles, even in the form of hunting. Is that related to femininity? I don't know. Right, But if we read into it, it could be, and gives us an understanding of this myth and of gender that is more diverse and interesting. And that's ultimately what I try to do with analysis is deconstruct these ideas instead of just stating them as a unified concept. Because clearly there's a dichotomy of gender in this myth, but there is not a direct dichotomy. It is not set up as a binary, but rather as something that is slightly fluid. Now, moving on from gender, I want to really dig into this encounter that Maui has with the sun. So firstly, the sun is, for some reason, at a centralized location in a crater uh, and on some island separate from the main Hawaiian islands. Now, this might be in reference to another island that had a big crater that existed somewhere close to Hawaii. I'm not perfectly familiar with the geography. There's a lot of atolls, which are basically like sea mountains, and sometimes they poke up, so there could have been craters back then at the writing of this myth, or, or even the um, first oral telling of this myth, that had massive craters that might not exist anymore today, so we don't even know. But the idea that Sun has a place on which he goes, and it is he in this myth, when he is tired and uh, just not, is not going back and forth across the sky, it seems that this idea of a place in which the sun sleeps is a common motif across a number of different myths, but there is this continuing concept across a number of different cultures that was clearly convergently evolved that the sun does not always go across the sky because people did not have this concept of a round earth, and if they did, it was not necessarily with the understanding of a solar system present as well. That's not to say that there were not tons of people who did not use written language that came up with extremely complex astronomical systems. There are a number of cultures that certainly did not. So it leaves us with an interesting question of, were the Polynesians and Hawaiians unaware of the astronomical reality of the sun? Or, and this I think is the more likely explanation, did they just use metaphor and uh, used a place 
for simplicity in the metaphors of this myth. Because what is the sun? The sun is a hot, fiery ball. It is passion, intensity, uh, strength. The sun is so many things. And the conquering of the sun, the holding down of the sun by Maui, is a demonstration of the strength of the people that they can bend the strengths of nature to their own will. Now remember that the Polynesians were a seafaring people and the Hawaiians were as well. So it makes a lot of sense that they had very good understandings of astronomy and sure enough they did. So that's why I say that this is the more likely explanation that this is a metaphor about how perhaps agriculture and all of these other things came about that allowed for people to not have to be tied directly to the natural world, but use it in a new, fresh way that was before then not seen on Earth. At least not in the traditional sense of how we think of agriculture on a human scale. There's lots of animals that have domesticated other animals. There's a specific type of ant that uses aphids as dispensers for honey, essentially, aphid honey which is just a sweet glucose-containing substance that they use for food. They use aphids like we would use cows, and that's pretty crazy, so it's not unheard of. Nonetheless, the agriculture that humans make use of is unique because we have domesticated so many different plants and so many different animals that we have a variety of food now, um, an insane variety, honestly. And that's somewhat because of the migration that humans have experienced across the globe. Let's get back to the sun. The, in Hawaii, the sun would have been a powerful force because not only is Hawaii in the tropics, but it's an island, meaning that when you see the sun in the sky, you could much more easily tell what side of the island you were on at that moment. It would, it would orient you very easily because you could always see which way is west and east. You know, sometimes when you're in a city these days, it's hard to see where the sun is exactly, and so you're a little disoriented if you're trying to say, oh, well, that's east and that's west, and because if you only see the direction that the sun's rays are coming from, it can be a little confusing. And in the mountains, it's very hard to do this as well, uh, because the sun will go down behind a mountain, and you won't see it for a while, and you won't know exactly where the sun is because mountains just surround you when you are in an alpine environment. So for island-dwelling people, the sun is probably the most important fixture of the cosmos. So it makes sense that Maui, a person, is able to control the sun, because controlling the sun is not only what allows for agriculture and for the raising of people up to perhaps this demigod status, right, of um, being quite great. And Maui helps people, right? That is what he does. He is a culture hero in that way. He is not just a hero. He is not just a god. He is a culture hero. This is similar to a whole number of different uh, heroes across story that can be found in almost every culture because there's a lot of different cultures that feel that they are the ones who came up with some specific thing 
whether that be irrigation or terracing or lots of other agricultural procedures that allowed for people to just change the way they lived their lives. And that was very important. The final thing I want to mention here is that there is a clear understanding of plant biology at the end in which the sun says to Maui that the plants are going to die if I don't go up and around the, the earth. So you got to let me go. Your people are going to die. And Maui recognizes this, and that's what allows for Sun to uh, make this deal with Maui, in which uh, he only goes across the sky at full tilt through half the year and much slower the other half. These myths that tell an origin of a natural phenomena are often quite simple, and there's relatively little that I can analyze beyond what I already have. Because the making sense of the natural world exists in a different sphere of knowledge these days. Right? We don't tell each other stories about how the sun uh, was trapped and now um, goes across slower. We, we talk about how seasons work, even with pretty young kids. I'm a science educator in my day job, and that's what I do. I mean, I don't talk about the sun necessarily. I mean, sometimes I do. But I teach people about how the world actually works in a very objective manner, as best I can. Of course, we're always subjective, and that's part of education, is you just have to recognize that your understanding of the world is full of subjectivity, and you cannot control that. So you have to choose what to say and be cognizant that you are not just saying what you believe and instead researching things fully. It's a, it's a difficult process. But I am very familiar with how we teach people about natural phenomena today. And it just is completely different. And it makes me question, what is the more impactful way for people to learn about the natural world? Is it through stories or is it through science? Because science can be very engaging if you uh, do it right. If you have demonstrations and if you have experiments, if you let people get hands-on, if you are really engaged just as much as the kids are. Because let's be honest here, we were all interested when we were kids in how the world worked. Even if you didn't like science, you were interested in how the world worked. You, can, you cannot tell me that you weren't. Because the world is inherently interesting to us humans that live in it. This story really pulls up that feeling in me of like, should we be, as scientists, making stories, ones that are scientifically accurate but still use characters and make a blend of these different styles so that we can fully educate people and engage people in a way that is going to benefit their learning and their education and ultimately their life as they age. I don't have an answer. And like so many questions I ask on this, I, I push you to think deeply about this question as well of is it easier or is it better to have an etiological myth that might be slightly incorrect but compelling and engaging and still teaches the basics of how the world works or is science more effective if it is done correctly, you know. Both of these must be done correctly. I think it's just easier for people to just tell a pre-existing story or even create a story 
because it allows for creativity, it allows for people to use their own experiences. But science strips people of their personal experience, which can be a very isolating thing, which honestly can completely derail a person's attempts to teach. So answer that question yourself on your own time. And I, I'd be curious if other people got more out of this myth than I did. I feel like I did not glean that much from this one, other than the natural phenomena and the gender roles. Those were the main things that I picked up. But sometimes that's how it goes. Sometimes a myth is more simple and has a more direct through line and is not interested in proliferating what it talks about, but rather centers in on a few very direct themes and does not deviate from them. You've been listening to Myth, the first and last word with Echo Kane. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can support the show and my work by continuing to listen, following the show wherever you get your podcasts, and engaging in discussion within the comments. Also, uh, share this podcast around if uh, you feel like it. I also compose, record, and produce my own music, which you can find on Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere you stream music. If you are interested in my written or visual work, you can find my full artist profile on www.echocain.com. That's www.echocain.com. Next episode, we'll be exploring a Scottish folktale called The Doomed Rider. Again, if you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions for the show, please compose one and only one email to theechocane at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and now, for the last word. Today's last word is... Snare.